Saints. Well, uh, again, we're kicking off this new series that's going to take us through the next several weeks of fall. A lot of times I do like four-week series, sometimes six-week series. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, there's a lot more really awesome stories out of the book of Judges than that. So we may be here two months. We may be here three months. Uh, this will definitely take us into the fall. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it because as we dig into and journey through this Old Testament book of Judges, if you've ever studied it or you've ever read it, you know there's some very interesting and exciting stories there in the book of Judges. But we're going to find that these stories are basically, you know, the history of Israel's spiritual condition is what we're going to find as we're going through this. And I believe that there is going to be so much in here that you and I are going to be able to relate to. And the reason that I say that uh, is because, especially in these first two chapters today, uh, we're going to get a snapshot of kind of Israel's rocky history where, you know, they're high and they're low, they're up, they're down, they're doing good, they're doing bad. And, and we see that here. And if we're all honest today, most of us... Uh, have found ourselves in that exact same situation as followers of Jesus. You know, it's like it's a roller coaster ride. You know, sometimes we're like at the top of the mountain. You know, things are going great. God is good. And then, you know, you find yourself in the valley and, you know, you're struggling just to get by. And, and sometimes you may, you may wonder and ask yourself, why is my spiritual life so up and down? Why are there so many highs? Why are there so many lows? You know, one week you're a super Christian. Uh, the next week you're wondering if you're even a Christian at all. I mean, anybody with me this morning? In, 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 probably nobody, but this imperfect pastor feels that way. Uh, you know, uh, as your pastor, sometimes I, I feel that way myself. You know, why are, are there highs? Why are there, there lows? And, and, and sometimes I'm like, you know, I believe that I may be spiritually bipolar. Uh, can anybody relate to me? Huh? I mean, if, we're, if I'm, I'm being honest, sometimes I feel that way. You know, I, I, and so I, I've even, you can ask our staff. I've been sitting in, in, in staff meetings before, and I'll say something, or something will come out of my mouth, and I'll be like, do y'all think I'm saved? You know, because sometimes I wonder in the way my mind works and things that I say. And, and then we look around us, and we look at all these perfect, pretty people that walk in the church, right, that seem to appear to have it all together and so perfect. And just so you know this morning, they're not, okay? They're not. Those people that you, are sitting around you right now that look like they have it all together and they're all perfect, they don't. This is the Nazarene church. All the perfect people go to another church down the road. Their pastor's name's Freddie Mark, okay? So they're not here, so it takes all the pressure off us to be perfect here this morning because here's what I've learned as a pastor uh, to be true. Everyone is screwed up once you get to know them, all right? They are. Uh, including your pastor. And, and so, you know, we're going to see that in Israel's struggles, in Israel's spiritual struggles that they have. And I believe that in doing that, we're going to see our struggles in the struggles that they have and the struggles that they face. Okay, and so it's going to be an awesome time. And then, again, if you've never read or studied the book of Judges, there's some really interesting and crazy stories in there. Uh, some of this is going to be PG-13. 
Uh, I've already been warned about, you know, uh, someone that heard the early service. They said, I know the next story that's coming in Judges. Are you telling that? And I'm like, yeah, you better believe I'm telling it, right? And so he said, be careful. And so I'll just give you that. I'm going to do my best to be careful. But the book opens like this in Judges chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, after the death of Joshua, and just to give you a little context where we're at, all right? Uh, Joshua had been this great leader. He had been chosen by God to lead the Israelites into the promised land, okay, into this land of Canaan. Uh, he had seen a lot of great victories, like the one we learn about as children, you know, uh, in Jericho where the walls came tumbling down. Joshua was their leader in that. But after he died, right, they had, they had you know, taken over parts of Canaan, but not all of it, not all that God had promised them had they uh, taken over or seized. And so there was parts of Canaan yet to still be conquered. And so Joshua uh, has died. And so the Israelites asked God, asked the Lord, who of us is to go up to fight against the Canaanites that remain here, right? And the Lord answered, Judah, the tribe of Judah out of Israel, uh, shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. So God's promise here is that this land is to be theirs, right? So the Israelites, uh, you know, things start out great. Uh, verse 4 says, When uh, Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. And here's where it begins to get bizarre. All right, verse 6. Adoni Bezek, which literally means in Hebrew, king of Bezek, all right, he fled, but they chased him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and big toes, all right? I told you there was some crazy stuff here, but there's a reason I'm covering this. Look at verse 7. Then, at, then uh, Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now, God has paid me back for what I did to them. And I just want to stop here. There's a reason I, I, I want to cover that, this bizarre story to begin with. And, and I want to stop here for a second and say that some people struggle with the book of Judges. And you may find yourself in this camp before we get through, maybe even this morning at some point. Because they struggle with the fact that God would send His people to inflict pain or death on other people. And, and so people struggle with that. You know, it looks like some sort of unjust crusade or, or, or unjust uh, punishment that's taking place here. But the reason I bring this up is because it's important that we don't miss what King Bezek is saying here. It really puts it into perspective for us. All right? He didn't say God is being unfair. Right? He didn't say that. He said God has paid me back for what I had done to them. All right? And if you study this history back in Deuteronomy and back in the book of Leviticus, God made clear to Israel that he was driving out the Canaanites because of the Canaanites' excessive wickedness. 
Okay, And that was the reason that he was using the Israelites to push them out. You see, it was a judgment upon the Canaanites. So Israel was being used by God as an instrument of his judgment on the Canaanites because of their extreme wickedness. And folks, I would just say that as the United States of America today, we probably ought to pay attention to how God works when a nation turns against him. These were not innocent people that the Israelites were going in and taking land from. These were extremely wicked people who had turned against the things of God. All right? And so God was using the Israelites to bring judgment on the land of Canaan. And Israel didn't just decide to take it upon themselves to do this. This was a direct command from God to do this. And here's the deal. All right, here's what's interesting about this. Fast forward to Jesus, all right? Now, after Jesus came, we don't see this type of thing happen anymore. You noticed? Once Jesus came, we, we, we don't see the things that we saw God doing through his people in the Old Testament. We don't see this kind of behavior and, and retaliation. With the coming of Jesus, God began a new way of working in this world. And Jesus came on a saving mission and not a killing mission. All right? It all changed when the Savior of the world came to the world. And those who follow Jesus participate in this saving mission. He didn't take life. He laid down his life for others. And he said that he came to be whose example? Our example. Jesus came so that he might be your example. And so as followers of Jesus, our example is this. To extend mercy, to extend grace, not judgment, not justice, not our job. Our job as followers of Jesus is to extend mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. We lay down our lives for others. We don't take them. More people should have said amen. I'm just saying. So let's pick it back up at verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains area because they had chariots fitted with iron. And if you think about it, that really makes sense, right? I mean, they've come up against an obstacle now that they really don't know what to do with. They, these were like modern-day tanks. Uh, they, they basically had, you know, taken iron and fitted their chariots with iron and made, you know, these irons of chari uh, chariots of iron. And, and just a few of these could mow down, scholars say just a few of these chariots of iron could mow down hundreds of foot soldiers on the ground, which was all that Israel had, was foot soldiers to fight. Israel couldn't do anything against these iron chariots. And, and so verse 27 says that they didn't drive these people out. It says, for the Canaanites were determined with their iron chariots to live in that land and to stay in that land. All right, the Canaanites are being difficult. They're not going along with the plan. Israel politely asked them to leave. They talked tough. They mounted a few attacks against them, but the Canaanites were stubborn, so the Israelites just kind of backed off. And then verse 28 says, When Israel became strong, 
They pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Tim Keller, uh, who wrote a, a, a great commentary on the book of Judges called uh, Judges for You, uh, and I'll be referencing him a lot throughout this series because uh, he just has done a phenomenal job uh, with this book. But he says this about this moment that's taking place here. He said, taken on its own terms, chapter 1 reads like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign. It is their spin on why they weren't as successful as we and God might have expected. As we read, we're lulled into sympathy with the Israelites. When we're told that they could not drive out the Canaanites, we're inclined to agree. They did their best. Right? They did their best. And not only that, but they got what seemed to be a better solution for both sides. They got, you know, free labor out of the deal, and the Canaanites got to stand. Looks like a win-win situation for both sides here. But then comes God's assessment of what was going on. And God's assessment of this situation is this. You did not obey. You did not obey me. Look at, look at, skip over to chapter 2 now, and let's pick it up at verse 1 there in chapter 2. The angel of the Lord said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give you and your ancestors. Yet, you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you. Another translation says, thorns in your sides. And their gods, their gods will become snares to you. And so what we're going to do as we go throughout this book of Judges over the next several weeks is, uh, is we're going to see how it relates to us and we're going to see what lessons that we can learn from this. And I believe lesson number one that we all must learn from the book of Judges is this. Just a little unbelief can create large disasters. Just a little Unbelief can create huge disasters. Don't miss this. These Canaanites became a thorn in the Israelites' side. They were a source of constant struggle and warfare. Why? Because the Israelites weren't obedient in what God told them to do. Think about what Israel was saying here. They looked at the iron chariots. They looked at the enemy in front of them. And what are they saying here? God, we can't drive them out. We tried, right? But God says, actually, it's not that you can't. Don't miss this. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. It's not that you can't do it. It's just that you won't do it. Listen, Christian. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Think about it. It has absolutely nothing to do with you not being equipped. It has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that you're not strong enough. It has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that there are iron chariots and tanks out there that appear to be conquered. But it has everything to do with you not being confident enough in your God. And who he said he was. And what he said that he would do. And so here's a question that I think we must ask ourselves. 
As we, you know, right here in the beginning of Judges, I think the question that is posed to every single one of us today is this. In what area of your life have you been saying, I can't? What area of your life have you been saying, I can't do that? Because God is saying, it's not that you can't. It's because you won't. It's not that you can, it's because you won't. If you look at life like your unconquered land of Canaan, where are you saying, I can't, when God would say, you won't? won't. And just real quickly, I just want to throw some things out that I thought of uh, as I was going through this that maybe fits with some of you here today. Maybe it's integrity. Maybe it's honesty in your life or, or maybe even in your business. And you'd say, well, God, you know, if I were to be totally honest in my business, you know, then I wouldn't probably get as much work. I have to fudge just a little bit so that I can stay competitive. If I play fair in this world, I'm never going to make it, right? And so we fudge a little and our integrity falls a little. Or maybe it's in an area today of extending forgiveness. And you know that you should forgive you know that you should forgive him or her, but you say, I can't. It's not that you can't, it's that you won't. Maybe it's a habit or addiction, and you know the right thing to do, but you look at it, and it seems so large, so difficult. It looks like an iron chariot sitting there, and you say, I just can't do it. It's too strong. It's too powerful. And one of the most common areas in our lives where we compromise, and I almost hesitate to bring it up because people start fidgeting and it rubs people the wrong way, but I figure as long as people are fidgeting and being rubbed the wrong way, then God's speaking to somebody that's fidgeting. So be careful, don't you fidget when I say this, because I'm watching you and so are your neighbors. But one of the most common areas in our lives where we compromise is in financial faithfulness and generosity. You know, in the, ooh, got real quiet. But in the early church, you know how people were known in the early church as followers of Jesus and of Christians? They didn't wear crosses around their neck. They didn't wear a t-shirt that said, here to serve, Greenbrier Nazarene, even though those are awesome. If you didn't get one, you're just missing out. They didn't have t-shirts back then. They didn't wear crosses. The way that people knew they were followers of Jesus is they would look at them and say, they're Jesus followers because they're generous. They're generous people. And that was a, a, a sign. That was the trademark, basically, of being a follower of Jesus was being a very generous person. But boy, how we've got away from that. You know, and, and you know, uh, a lot of people are, uh, you know, and I, and I get it because you're sitting here thinking I can barely afford to get by now, right? I, I can't afford to be generous to other people. I can't afford to be uh, generous. There's no way that I could give up another 10% out of my check. You know, I just can't do it. There's no way. I can't. And besides that, is the church really a good investment anyway? I mean, you know you've got to think about your future, right? And so the church is probably not the greatest investment for you, so you just can't do it. Can't be generous. 
And so in these areas and many more in our lives, we say, God, I just can't. I'm sorry. I've tried. I'm doing my absolute best. But I can't. But God says, no, it's not that you can't. It's simply that you won't. It's simply that you won't. And it has nothing to do with what you can't do, but it has everything to do with how much you believe God can do. Hello? It doesn't have anything to do with what you can't do. It has everything to do with what you believe God can do in you and through you and what He has promised you as a child of God. And don't miss this. Israel was still very religious. I mean, they had it down. They knew the sword drills. They knew, I mean, they had being religious down. They had it. But here's the deal. Here's a warning to the church. They knew how to play church really well, but they had stopped walking in faith. They knew what they could do. They knew what they could accomplish with the manpower, the resources, the money. They knew what they could do. But they had stopped walking in faith, believing that God could do so much more than they could do. And, and I've said often, time and time again, and, I, and I'm sorry, we're training a new guy up there in the sound booth today, and he's trying to follow my notes and keep up, and I keep getting away from my notes. But I've said it time and time again. I just wish one time, as a church, we would do something. We would commit to something that we know we can't do. And watch God do it for us. And don't miss this, again, there's a huge difference between being religious and walking in faith. The sign that you are walking in faith and walking by faith is full obedience to God. And there, there's basically two ways. We've talked about this before. There's two ways that you can approach a relationship with God. All right? One is where you do your own thing. You try to do... All right. <laughs> Some of you are doing this. You're trying to do just enough to keep God off your back. Right? You're doing just enough to try to keep God happy so that in the future, if you need to, you can use Him as a safety net. Now, you would never say that or admit that, but that's exactly how some of you are living your lives. You're doing your dead-level best just to do enough. Right? So you can do that. Or you can do what God said He wanted you to do, and that is totally and fully surrender yourself and all things under His Lordship and His authority. All right, so you can choose. You can do a little, keep Him happy. Or you can do what He said. Be obedient to what He said do. Take the land and totally surrender and be fully Obedient. Israel's compromise, think about it. It started with what? It started with failure to believe that God could do what he said he could do. If they really believed that God said, here's the land, take it, the land is yours, they would have taken the land. But they didn't believe in God enough to do what he told them to do. And so this all began with a lack of belief and a lack of faith. And that can lead to large disasters. And we're going to see just how bad it got uh, before we get finished here in just a few minutes. But we're going to move on right now. 
It gets worse. Let's pick it up at verse 12 here in chapter 2. It says, They forsook the Lord, which means they abandoned the things of God. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed in worship. Don't miss this. They followed in worship various gods of the people around them. And verse 14 says, In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer to resist. So they started to go after the gods of the people around them. If you're asleep right now, wake up. All right, I'm not going to call you by name. They started to go after the gods of the people around them. Those things and those people then enslaved them. Don't miss that. All right? And that brings us to lesson number two from this story. You have the opportunity. You get to choose between a God who saves or gods who enslave. It's your choice. All right? And the Bible teaches us repeatedly that sin leads to slavery. And this is just another incredible example of that very thing. And here's the deal. So many people begin to follow idols of this world. Now, not, not a single one of us here would ever say that we were an idol worshiper, right? Or that we were following the gods of other people. But I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people in this world today who are following the idols of this world because it appears to give them happiness. It appears to give them wealth. It appears to give them freedom. It appears to give them power. And can I just tell you this morning, that in itself is a definition of an idol. That's the definition of an idol. Anything that promises you happiness, anything that promises you joy, anything that promises you freedom without God, it's an idol. Y'all are so quiet. This is some good preaching. My mama would say, y'all need to say amen more. But what it actually does, these things that promise us happiness, that promise us, you know, power, promise us wealth, all these things, you know, that promises these things, what it actually does, and we see it time and time again, not just in the Bible, we see it in our world today, it puts us in chains. It puts us in chains. It enslaves us and, and puts us in chains of bondage and slavery. And I see it all the time. You see it all the time. It may very well be going on in your life right now. All right, but, but back to money, because that makes everybody freaky in the church when you say money. But money is one of the biggest idols the Bible speaks to in our, in our lives. Because money says this, I can give you happiness. Money says, I can give you the desires of your heart. Money says, I can give you power. I can give you freedom. And so what do we do? We chase after that, right? We chase after it. But here's the deal. Those of you know that, that have, have gotten some, it's never enough. It's never enough. And so what do you do? Work harder, right? Work more hours. Chase after it faster, you know. It, it, and when you do that, what's happening in the background? Well, it's taking you away 
from your family? Hello, are you listening? Some guys here? You're chasing after things that are taking you away from your family? It takes you away from your family. It destroys your other relationships because your priority is on chasing an idol. It destroys not only relationships, but it destroys even your health because you're exhausted from chasing and running, trying to pursue and catch what's out there that will bring you security and happiness. And it's always demanding more, and it promises you what you want, but you're never satisfied. And folks, can I just tell you this morning, that is not the life of a free man. That's the life of a slave. That kind of life right there that I just described is not the life of a free man. It's the life of a slave. Give your life sometimes to building a reputation because you thought that with a good reputation you'd have influence and power and freedom. But I'm going to tell you, some of you, it's had the opposite effect of that in your life because you've become really sensitive to criticism. And how do I know this? Because I'm that guy. My reputation is so important that it has gotten to a point to where people would criticize and I would be offended to, by that, sensitive to that. Because here's the deal, you're obsessed with what people think about you. We're obsessed with what people think about us. Let me just include myself in this. And you get bitter because people don't appreciate you the way they ought to appreciate you. Because, oh, by the way, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread to ever walk the face of the earth. Can I just tell you? This is not the life of a free man. That's the life of a slave. But in contrast to these gods of the people around them that were saying, this is fun, this is great, come join us, you're going to love it here. You know, those things of the people around them is what drew them in and enslaved them. Listen, church, you hear the message? But in contrast to these false gods that the people had to offer, that would enslave them, we get a glimpse here into the heart of God. And I know I'm going long, but this is just good. Look at verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. And he goes on to say, they were in great distress. But the Lord raised up these judges, hence the book of Judges, okay? The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Make no mistake about it, folks. God is righteously angry with sin. Don't you think he's not? He is righteously angry uh, against sin. God is a jealous God. And he is jealously angry over our disobedience and our betrayal. And it's not a bad jealousy. We think of, you know, God shouldn't be jealous. It's not that kind of jealousy, all right? It's not a bad jealousy. It's a good jealousy. It's the kind of jealousy to where you want your spouse to only be faithful to you, right? I mean, is that bad? Is it wrong that you want only your spouse to be faithful to you, to only show their affection to you? 
I mean, that's the kind of jealousy that God has. He doesn't want other things or other people to receive our affection, our worship, and our love. And so that's what we're talking about when we say that God is a jealous God. And he's, he, he wants to be our only God. He wants to be our, our only real object of worship. All right, so God is angry. We see that here. But then we see here also that God feels pity. He sees them in distress. Right? Verse 18 here says that the Lord took pity on them, for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. And that word for groaning here in Hebrew doesn't imply repentance. All right, it doesn't imply here that they repented of their disobedience. It was just simply a cry of misery. A cry out of groaning of, look at the mess that we've got ourselves into. This is horrible. And so it tells us here that it moved God to see that they were hurting. It moved God to see his people hurting even when, think about it, even when they had brought it on themselves, right? They'd brought their situation on themselves, and they weren't even sorry for it. I mean, they weren't repentant. They were just crying about it. They were crying about their situation. And so God feels pity on them. And in verse 16, he acts to save them. And he raises up judges to deliver them and to help them. But that introduces a whole other dilemma and situation into the equation. Because here's the deal. We see, we see, going to see later as we go on that these judges, oh, guess what? They're not perfect either. They're not perfect people. They themselves are broken people, and we'll see that they are inconsistent. We'll see that they are, you know, sometimes unbelieving and greedy and, and immoral. So the question that comes back, you know, that, that, that comes from the, the book of Judges is this. How can these judges be Israel's saviors when they themselves actually need to be saved? But in hindsight, you and I know the answer to that. In hindsight, we know that ultimately a Savior will come. Huh? There will be... <laughs> a new judge will come that will deliver us from our enemies and pay the price for our disobedience. And his name is Jesus. Through Jesus, God says, I'll pay the price for your disobedience. Right? Through Jesus, God says, I'll pursue you even when you're not pursuing me. Through Jesus, he says, when you are faithless, I'll be faithful. I will be with you to the very end. And oh, by the way, if you're following me, the good work that I began in you, I'm going to finish it, right? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, I'm going, I'm, I will not fail to complete this good work that I began in you. And, and listen, I, I know some of you here today, you've, you're going through a lot of stuff. You've been through a lot of stuff. It's unbelievable that you're even able to be here today. And some of you here today, you know, you feel weak and you look out and you see the iron chariot. Right, You see the tank, and, and, and you know there are some things in your life that you feel like you just can't overcome because they look so strong and, and so powerful. 
Hey, you may be here this morning and feel like, you know what, I'm never going to get it right. And you know what, to be honest, you don't even know if it's worth trying to get it right because you failed so many times before in the past. So you don't even know if it's worth trying again. But God wants you to hear this today. If you've accepted Him, if you've placed your faith in Him, He has begun a good work in you, and He is going to see it through to the very end. But here's the deal. Once again, it always comes back to this. It's your choice. Right? He created every single one of us with what they call free will, the freedom to choose. You get to choose between a God who saves or gods that enslave. It will be your choice. God, gods of this world that put you in change, chains or God that loves you like a father. And if you give your life to money or fame or romance or family or respect... Can I just tell you? You will become a slave to it. But give yourself to God, and you will find the most satisfying, freeing, forgiving love ever known to man or that you will ever experience in your entire life. Because like we saw earlier, just a little unbelief can create a large disaster. And real quickly, I'm going to close with this because I want you to see just how bad it got and just how bad it can get just like that. Verse, 10, uh, verse 2, chapter 10 tells us this. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, after they were all dead and gone, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Do you see what just a little bit of unbelief and disobedience can do? Just a little can create a large disaster, not just for you, but for the generations that are going to follow us. Why? And, and I have to ask this morning, you know, as, as we think about this, why in the world would we trust God with our salvation, but not trust Him with every single thing that happens in our life every single day? I mean, why do we trust Him to be our Savior? Why do we trust Him to save us uh, uh, from an eternity in hell, but we don't trust Him with our everyday life? We don't trust Him with our finances. We don't trust Him with our, our schedule. A God that you can trust with your eternity, you can trust with your bank account. Hello? A God that you can trust with your eternity, you can trust with your budget. And you can trust with your finances. A God that paid a price for your sin that you could never pay, you can trust with the things that cause you worry and cause you stress. You can trust Him with those things. Right? A God that overcame death, can I just tell you, you can trust Him with your future. A God that overcomes death, you can trust with your future, your kids' future, your grandkids' future, because yes, oh, by the way, He overcame death. And not only that, but you need to teach this. Listen to me now. I'm trying my dead level best to close for the last 30 minutes. And I'm sweating. Folks, we, you, need to teach this to your children and your grandchildren.
There's a lot of lessons here. Just two we've seen real quickly in the book of Judges. Are these lessons that we're passing down to our children and our grandchildren? Right here in this story, I want you to think about what's happening here. We see one generation that sees God do some amazing things, right? He brings them out of Egypt. Man, it's just an incredible story that we see throughout the Old Testament, what God has done. Just right before this, he's knocked down the walls of Jericho. Incredible story. And the very next generation, it is written of them that they don't know God or the things that he has done. That's how quick it is. That's how quick that it happens. And parents, can I just ask you, are your children learning the power and the promises of God and the gospel from you? All right, because yes, we're here to partner with you. We've talked about this before. As a church, yes, it's our responsibility. That's why we invest so much in children's and kids and youth uh, ministries in this church. Yes, we want to partner with you to do that. But can I just tell you this morning, and boy, if my children's pastor, my youth pastor were in here this morning, I know I'd get some amens, but they'd be the only two. We only get your kids one or two hours a week at best. At best, we get them one or two hours a week. There's 168 hours in a week. And we might get them an hour. And some of you think that it's our responsibility to raise your children to be children of God. Yeah, they're going to see about God here. They're going to learn about God here. It's going, everything that happens here is going to be God-focused. But can I just ask you this morning? Some of you are twitching. I, I see you. Twitchers. They see and hear about God here, but what about in your home? What about in your home? Do they see it in your home? Do they see it in your priorities? Do they see it in how you spend your money? Do they see it in how, because you're the adults and they're the kids in this equation, so you scheduled their time. You scheduled their activities. So do your kids see the things of God in how you're scheduling their time? Boy, y'all got quiet. It's the truth. If you evaluate just the things that you have your children involved in, what would they conclude is the most important thing? If you were just to make a list of the things that you have your kids involved in, and you make the decision, you pay the money, you sign them up, you do all these things, some of you ain't never coming back. I see it in your eyes. It's all right. You've heard this message. If you take all those things, what would your kids conclude is the most important thing? And the Bible is clear here, folks. The future of the next generation is hanging on us. The future of the next generation is hanging on our faithfulness and our obedience to do what God has called us to do as the church and as parents of kids.
Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord or the things that he had done. I pray that that will never be said of us. I pray that that would never be said of the generations that come behind us, that it would be said of them. They knew nothing about the Lord or the things that he had done. Folks, it's on us to teach them. It's on you to teach them. We see here that Israel was miserable. They were miserable, groaning, right? Because of what? Because of the situation they had found themselves in. That's what that was all about. That they had created this mess and now they were in it and now they're groaning and crying and moaning about it. But evidently they didn't repent because here's the deal. Repentance means making changes. Huh? You can feel bad that you're in a mess or you can help get God to help you change your mess. Right? Repentance means making changes. So can I just ask you this morning, what does that look like for you? What does repentance look like for you? What changes need to be made in your life, in your family, in this church? What does that look like? Changing your habits? Maybe changing your schedule? Changing your priorities? You know, getting your family involved in the life of the church so that church isn't just a religious event that they attend occasionally? But instead, it's a community that you belong to because that's what it was intended to be, a movement, a community that you would be involved with that would help you raise your kids. Who in here don't need help raising their kids, huh? Come on. We all need help. That's what the church is all about. That's what we're here for. And so, what changes need to be made? Maybe today, it's simply you resolving just to obey God fully in all areas of your life. Folks, here's the deal. I don't know what it is for you today, but you know. The Holy Spirit does that work. I don't have to. And so you know what it is that God is speaking to you about that you need to repent of or change or whatever it may be. But that's on you. Because again, we have a choice between the God who saves or the God's who enslave. And it's your decision and then it's your choice. And I'm sorry I went long this morning, but we're going to close with a time of prayer. These altars are open to you if you would like to come pray, maybe about a situation, uh, maybe a, something that's going on with a friend or a family member or in your life and you want to come, come now. I invite you to come and pray. There's a prayer chest here, here filled with names of people we pray for every single week that they would come to know Christ. Some of you are here and your names are in there. Some of you have accepted Christ and some of you are still fighting it. Well, we're still praying. Also, so many in our church, I, I would just ask you to continue to pray for, for Donna. It's good to have her here this morning. Just been through a rough time. Uh, had the memorial of her husband, Steve, uh, this past week. Just a beautiful service, beautiful family. But continue to pray for Donna and the family and friends of Steve Pounders. Robert Marilyn Johnson's son, their only son, has two young kids, uh, had a massive heart attack this week, uh, and uh, has been uh, uh, flown to uh, Baylor University out in Texas. Uh, very critical, very serious situation. A young man uh, that's got massive heart damage. Kim Hughes, a friend of ours that has cancer that's battling daily. Uh, Jim Roofner, uh, Ella's dad, 
uh, that's been battling a lot of health issues. And then, y'all, I, I can't even begin to imagine the pastors that are standing in churches today and behind pulpits today in the Texas and Ohio uh, areas that were affected by these mass shootings that took place yesterday. Twenty dead in El Paso. And it appears to be an act against um, Hispanics. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're Hispanic, I just want you to know you're welcome here. We love you. Uh, God does not see color. He does not see race. He doesn't see education or economic status. We're all equal at the cross. And they're all welcome. They're all welcome. Whether they can speak our language or not, they're welcome. Because God died for every single one. 20 dead in Texas, 10 dead this morning in Dayton, Ohio, in another shooting. Folks, there's no better time than for the church to step up and to extend love and to stop it with the hate and to stop it with the anger and to stop it with the division. We're more divided even in the church than we are out outside the walls of the church, and that's sad. That's a sad witness for the church today. We're to extend love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, not justice. And I pray that the world would see just that through the church today and in the days ahead. A great man greater than me one time said, Only love can drive out hate. And so let's join them in prayer. I cannot even imagine the loss and the pain and the anger and all the things that are wrapped around these events that seem to happen on a daily and weekly basis. And so uh, let's just vow. Let's ask God to help make us a part of the solution and not part of the problem. Let's pray. God, sometimes it just seems like you take your word and just... Uh, some days it just feels like we get a good wearing out. And uh, you know exactly what we need and when we need it. I don't always understand the message, but I understand that you asked it to be delivered. And so I know that your word never returns to you void. That's another promise we have in Scripture. I thank you for what you're doing here today. And for those that are going to leave upset, those that may leave angry, those that may think that this was not of God God I can't do anything about that all I can do is deliver your word and pray that your spirit uses it the way that you intended so God I pray that we'd be all open and available to what you want to do in and through our lives there's so many in our church so many in this room today that are hurting and have been through difficult times facing difficult times ahead many of our church that are going through cancer treatments uh, facing uncertainty of health uh, and situations that they can't control and they don't know how it's going to end or what it's going to look like thank you for reminding us today that the good work that you began in us you're going to see through till it's finished thank you for that hope thank you for that help thank you for loving us enough to do that for us. God, I pray for these in these communities that have experienced great loss. Those in El Paso, those in Dayton, Ohio today that are grieving 
Some still fighting for their lives. Some asking why. And God, that's perfectly okay to ask why. I mean, Jesus him, himself even questioned, God, God, why? Why have you forsaken me? So it's okay to ask why. But we also need to understand, God, that it's sin that has caused this and created this. And so, God, I just pray that we as the church would, we would be galvanized, we would be united in a movement of love, in a movement of mercy, in a movement of grace. And God, forgive us if we've been a part of the division. Forgive us if we've been a part of the anger. Forgive us if we've been a part of the ones that have caused people to act uh, in ways that would harm others. But God, help us to have gentle words. Help us to be encouragers the way that you intended for us to. The, the, the fruit of the Spirit, it's so cool. Our kids learned about this this week. Maybe we need to learn it again as adults. The fruit of the Spirit looks nothing like a lot of the things that we're seeing in this world today. So I pray that as we, the church, goes out, that people would see the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and all of those things are good. All of those things help. All of those things encourage. And so, God, that's who we want to be. We want to be obedient. We want to be faithful people to what you've commanded us to do. Because we've seen here this morning through a tragic story just what a little bit unbelief, the damage that it can do and how quickly it can happen. And so God help us. We can't do it on our own. We can't take on the iron chariots on our own. But God, we are children of an almighty God who is all-powerful, who can do all things. (laughs) And so we claim it and we stand on that today. And I pray that you'd find us faithful to do the things that we know we can't do, but the things that you can do in and through our lives. God, we continue to pray for the other churches in our neighborhoods and in our community today that are gathering. My brother Brad that's pastoring down at Greater Fellowship this morning, I just pray that you'd you'd move upon them in a special way. God, we'd love to see them grow. We'd love to see you use them to bring souls into the kingdom. Use Brad. Use those people to be an extension of your love. I know they are. I pray that you bless their Celebrate Recovery ministry that they've started to try to help people overcome these iron chariots in their lives that look like things that they can't conquer. I pray that you'd bless that ministry and give them the help that they need to be able to help others. And God, as we go from this place, I pray that you would look upon us as people who are faithful people who are obedient to the call to be followers of Jesus. And it's in your powerful son's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. God bless you guys.